Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Church 21. I'm so glad to be here. It's always a privilege to get to preach God's word um, to you folks. And today is even an extra special honor. Let me pull this up. Because we have a special audience. Today we have um, decided this week that we're going to allow the children to be part of the gathered worship service today. So all kids from kindergarten and up are right here worshiping alongside of us. Um, I imagine not a lot of kids have sat through a lot of sermons already, but they've been learning about the stories of the Bible and the stories of Jesus in our kids' zone. But due to our summer schedule and volunteers being, being away, we're just going to have you guys right here in the serv- service with us to listen to the sermon. We still have a nursery and a preschool age group out in the kids' zone. But I also brought in some journals and markers for the kids to doodle and take notes, as well as some snacks at the table up here at the front. So I don't mind a little extra noise today. That's totally fine. We're all a big family here. So I'm going to go through the uh, second chapter of a book in the Bible called Ephesians. And I'm going to contextualize some of the points here to kids. And I'm going to contextualize a lot of it, too, for the adults as we go deeper in God's word. Um, Let me just say a quick prayer before we go into that. Jesus, thank you so much for your love for us, the grace and mercy that you have for us, and I pray that you would open our hearts to listen today and to listen for what you want to teach us, um, because your word is awesome and so much bigger than who we are, and we need it for life. And uh, thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So... Kids, what's, your, what's some of your favorite shows? This is a rhetorical question. Um, what are some of your favorite adventure shows? Who here likes Paw Patrol? Yep. <laughs> How about PJ Masks or Dora the Explorer? These are some pretty fun kids' shows. Um, if you're familiar with some of these shows, you'll notice there's usually three points in these episodes. Most of these shows have a similar story where there's a problem. Someone needs help. And then a hero comes to save the day, and he fixes the problem and saves the people. And then the people are saved. And actually, these points are pretty common. Yes. These points are pretty common in a lot of the shows and movies that grown-ups watch, too. These are parts of a big story that we all enjoy. So as you listen to a sermon, something that we speak and announce from God's Word, we see a lot of these same things, too. There's a problem that we face. And we call that problem sin. And then God comes to save the day. And he sends a hero whose name is Jesus. And then the people are saved because of Jesus. And this true story of God rescuing sinners is something called the gospel. It means good news. And every week we come here to announce this good news and to celebrate who Jesus is. So that's what we're doing today. Um... One author and pastor says it really well. He says this about the gospel and why we never go to something beyond the gospel. We come here and we preach the gospel every week. Tim Keller says that we never get beyond the gospel. I don't know if I have it up here. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm interrupting my own quote. Hero comes to save the day. People are saved. All right, Tim Keller says... We never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. 
So today as I preach the gospel from Ephesians 2, it may sound like the ABCs of Christianity to some of the kids here because it's the first things you need to know. But it might also sound like the A to Z of Christianity to the adults here and the grown-ups here because it's everything you need to know. It's the one thing that we talk about here. So this part of the Bible that, we're, that I'm preaching from is called Ephesians. It's a letter that was written a long, long time ago by a pastor named Paul to his church. And he's going to look at three topics that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a problem called sin. We're going to look at how God saves the day. And then we're going to see how God, um, how, how the people are saved and, and how we live in a relationship with God. So I'm going to start with the first three verses. Jordan just read a few of these. And I'm going to read it again for us. So Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, so, yes, that's what I just read. Sorry, guys, I'm behind on the slides. Um, So there's a lot of big words in that whole sentence, um, but I just want to focus on two to start with, sin and wrath. What is sin? So let me tell you a little story. Uh, Jillian and I, a few months ago, we were sitting in our living room, and Haven and Elijah were off playing by themselves in their room, And all of a sudden, we heard a huge crash, and we knew something was wrong. And Haven came out of the room, she came to us, and what's funny about this story is the choice of words Haven used to describe what happened. She came and said to us with a serious face, Elijah did a bad thing. And so she's three years old, she's trying to find the right words to describe what happened, and we went in, everything was fine, but apparently Elijah had a light bulb somehow and it broke. And uh, it might, might make me sound like a bad parent, but everyone was fine. Um, that's okay. But there was obviously a uh-oh moment. Something is broken. We need help. So she needed to come and get help because Haven and Elijah can't clean up that mess on their own. A textbook example of what sin is, a a definition, is it's anything that we do, that we say, or that we think that is displeasing to God. Or a more uh, creative definition of sin from a children's author named Sally Lloyd-Jones. She says, what is sin? Sin is trying to get away from God who loves us. It's wanting to go our own way without him. But it's not like simply wandering off the path and getting lost by mistake. It's like a horse charging at full speed away from him. So in my example, Elijah had an accident where he broke something. It wasn't like he purposely took something of mine that was valuable and he thought, oh, this is going to make dad, if I break, dad mad if I break this. It was an accident. Sin is more like the intentional things that we do, say, or think. And uh, it's in our nature. But sometimes we recognize sin when things are not the way they should be. Any of us can recognize sin 
as things the way they, things are not the way that they should be. Things are broken. When we realize something is wrong with a situation, when we realize something, someone's in trouble, this is when we realize that sin is a problem in our lives. So kids, according to this definition of sin, would you say that you have ever sinned? I want you to think about that for just a minute. Would you say that you have ever done, said, or thought something that was displeasing to God? Think about that. But adults, I want to go a little deeper into the scripture today in the way that the Bible diagnoses the human problem of sin. Paul describes sin in three ways in these three verses. He says that we were dead, that we were doomed, and, sorry, dead, disobedient, and doomed. All right, so he says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in the first verse here. What that means is that we were spiritually unresponsive. We were not responding to God. We were totally unable to please God as we walked in sin in this condition. What is the, this is what Paul tells us here in the Bible, but what does the world tell us? Would the world agree with this definition or with this diagnosis? Oftentimes, the world tells us that we're actually basically good people, that we start off with a clean slate and we can actually please God just by being good people. But is that what the Bible says? We see here that even a, a spiritually dead person, I would say, can actually accomplish great things. They can do a lot of good things. They can even do good humanitarian work, but still be unpleasing to God if they are in sin. We're all made in God's image and capable of doing good, but if we're not connected to God and alive in him, then that means that we are still in sin. This is what Paul is saying that we were all like when we were dead in sin. Second way he describes sin is he says we were disobedient. It says in, um, in the actual scripture here that we were following the course of this world. And behind that, that we were following the prince of the power of the air. That's a term for Satan, God's enemy. Um, and that we were, uh, who's at work in the sons of disobedience. So disobedience is part of our sinful condition. But this truth even though it was written thousands of years ago, doesn't just stop applying to those people. It actually applies to us today. One commentator on this verse says it this way, that an unsaved person is controlled by the world's influences, by the values of the age, which are contrary to God's values. The unsaved assume the attitudes, habits, and lifestyles of the culture. So this is what it's like to be following the course of the world. Whatever the course of the world is in any given year, decade, century. Um, and a lot of times we like to look back at history. We look back at previous generations and we see maybe some of the mistakes they made. Or some of the ways that they sinned. And uh, it's easy to point that out. But we're often blind to see the influence of sin on our current attitudes and habits and, and our uh, values and lifestyles. It's very easy to become blind to that. So that's why Paul says that we were living in disobedience um, because when we're following the course of the world, we are inclined to 
follow that culture. And actually, who's behind that is really God's enemy, who is Satan. He's moving these things, and he lays out the bait for us to take, and we are powerless to, we're powerless against it when we're not connected with God. So that's why Paul even says that we were following the prince of the power of the air here. Thirdly, Paul says that we were dead, we were disobedient, and we were doomed. Here's how he describes this. He says that we were following the course of the world and that we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what is wrath? That's what I want to talk about for a moment. Um, Kids, I asked a couple minutes ago if you would say that you had ever sinned. Based on what I described, if you've ever done something, said something, or thought something that would be displeasing to God, well, if you said yes, you're right. You're right. And the Bible actually tells us that everyone in the world has sinned and falls short of God's glory. The Bible also tells us that there's a consequence, there's a result because of sin, and that result is death. But there's good news. We have a God who loves sinners, okay? So that's what we're gonna go on and talk about, but that means that we're all sinners, that we all deserve a consequence. So kids, have you ever done something, something wrong, and you thought, mom and dad are not going to be happy about this. Or you've done something and you knew, I'm going to be in trouble. Or maybe you broke something that you had to repay, but you could not afford to pay back what, what happened. Well, when we disobey in situations like this, of course we all need discipline. But when we talk about the word that the Bible uses here, it's a little different than punishment. I mean, it's a little different than discipline. It's more of the idea of punishment or wrath. So here's the big thing. God, because he's perfect, he does not allow sin to exist forever. He hates sin. So all the wrong things that happen, all the bad things that take place, God hates it. He will not allow it to go on forever. God's hatred towards sin is a good thing. It's part of his love. God's hatred towards sin is called wrath. So, adults, some of us don't like to talk about wrath. We think, oh, it'll scare people away. It doesn't sound nice. Um, It sounds mean. Why don't we talk about wrath? Well, here, I want you to imagine with me, imagine if God did not hate sin. There would only be really two alternatives. One alternative would be that God likes sin, that he enjoys it. And that would not be correct because that would make God a sinner. He wouldn't be God. So that's not possible. The second alternative would be that at least God doesn't mind it, that he's not bothered by it, that he isn't, he tolerates when things are wrong and when things uh, when are broken and when people are hurt. But I don't think that's true either. We have a God who's perfect and loves us perfectly, so he has to hate sin, and that is a good thing. Where do we see God's wrath, guys? Many people think that the God of the Old Testament in the old, old stories in the Bible was full of wrath. And I've heard people describe that the God in the New Testament has kind of chilled out, that he isn't so angry anymore. Well, this isn't true either. Um, God's wrath, his hatred towards sin, is consistent. He always hates sin, But right now, we're in this period of time where God is patient with us. Are your parents ever patient with you? They allow you to 
to keep growing and learning. Well, God is patient toward mankind, not wishing that anybody would perish, but that all would turn to him in repentance. But there is a future day when we're going to see wrath for the very last time. So, um, grown-ups here, I want us to look at a particular picture of this in the book of Revelation. I'm going to look at chapter 6. I'll pull it up here. Verses 12 through 17. This is John who wrote the book of Revelation. He's looking at a picture of the last days, and he sees this. There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, just like a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among rocks, the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Well, this is a pretty important picture. I know there's a lot of big words in there too, but I want to let us know that God's wrath is not revenge. God's wrath is not a violent outburst. It's his justice towards sin. It's his justice towards um, what's wrong in the world. So fortunately though, even though all have sinned, there's a hope for all because of the person who is sitting on the throne in this picture. He's a king and his name is Jesus and we call him a lamb. So this is my first point, kids. Um, Sin is a problem for everyone. But let's look at the second point where God saves the day. I think we're ready for that. The best line of this chapter really comes in just two words. The next two words here, but God. So if you're reading in Ephesians with me, we see this in verses four through seven. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Wow. We would be dead. We would be disobedient. We would be doomed. But God, God changes everything. So kids, sin seems like a pretty big problem, right? How do you think we can possibly get rid of it? We can't just decide to be nice people. That's not going to work. And really, we can't save up enough money or do enough good things to pay for the amount of bad that we've done um, or the amount of, of ways that we've gone against God. Well, Paul says here, though, that God can save the day. We need someone who's bigger than us to come and save the day. And Paul says that God can do that and that, in fact, God has already done that by sending his son Jesus to solve the problem. So 
Why would God do this? And how did God do this? this these verses describe that God um, came to save us because of three things. Because, because of his mercy, because of his grace, and because of his love. Well, mercy and grace are really just like God's love. Mercy means that God loves people who are in need. So God saw that we needed him and he had pity on us and he came to love us. Grace means that God loves people who don't deserve it. So he saw our disobedience and he knew that we didn't deserve his forgiveness, but he loved us anyway. This is what grace and mercy are. So imagine if you had done something wrong against, let's say, your parents. You broke something you couldn't fix or pay for, and you knew that what you deserved was punishment. Well, but imagine that instead someone else stepped in who did not deserve punishment, but stepped in and took the blame for you and actually exchanged it for a reward. Well, that punishment was God's wrath. That's what we just described. And it's already been taken by someone else. It's already been poured out on a savior who paid the price of death that we talked about. And that's why we call Jesus, our savior, a lamb. In the Old Testament, the old, old stories of God's people, when God's people knew that their sins deserved to be paid by death, what they would do is they'd take a pure, spotless lamb, they'd hold it, and they'd transfer their sin to the lamb so that their sin would go away with its death. So this is something that God did in, in the Old Testament. And they transferred their sin into forgiveness, not just by a physical act, but by faith, by an act of faith, which is believing in God's promise to give them forgiveness in that special way. This is why we call Jesus the Lamb of God. He's not the Lamb that we provided for our sins. He's the Lamb that God provided for our sins. That's why it's so important to remember that Jesus is our Lamb. He's the Lamb of God. Now, um, turning to the adults now, um, Paul describes four things, particularly in the way that God saves us. Paul says that God made us alive with Christ, that he raised us up with Christ, and that he seated us with Christ, and that God will show immeasurably rich grace and kindness forever to us in Christ. So let's go a little deeper and look at these four points. God made us alive. Oh, man. Sorry about my slides. Okay, here we go. So God made us alive with Christ. This is so important because just, just like the first time we were born into this world, the first time we came to life, Paul just described that by being born... We were by nature sinners. We were already sinners as we began uh, life. And he says that by nature we were children of wrath. But God undoes that. He reverses that when he says, now we are made alive spiritually. When, when he made us alive in Christ. We've been born, it's like we've been born a second time. And in Jesus, we are not just made into a nice person. We're actually made into a new person. And we have new inclinations, a new ability to walk, really. Second thing that Paul describes in what, what God accomplished for us in salvation 
is that uh, he raised us with Christ. Here we go. God raised us with Christ. Well, how did God raise Christ? How did he raise Jesus? What does that mean? He describes it just a few verses back. Let me see if I put that in. I'm going to read it for you in uh, the first chapter of this book, or you can glance back a page yourself. In verses 19 through 21, Paul wants his church to know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So it's the same God that raised Jesus from the tomb that raises us up with him. We often uh, sing here, the resurrected king is resurrecting me. And that's exactly what these verses describe. A king who came to save the day and pay for the problem of sin and, and raise up from the grave and then bring us with him. There's one pastor and author um, named Tony Merida, and he says it this way, that what God did for Christ, he did at the same time for believers. In some astonishing way, when Jesus Christ got out of the tomb 2,000 years ago, Tony Merida got up with him. Church 21, can you say the same for yourselves today? Can you fill in the blank here in some astonishing way, when Jesus Christ got out of the tomb 2,000 years ago, Jordan Weeks got up with him. Jeff Wright got up with him. Mike Gockley got up with him. Can you say that for yourselves? These verses describe how that has been accomplished for you by God. He raised us with Christ. Next, it says that God seated us with Christ. What does this mean? Well, we just looked at this interesting picture in the book of Revelation, where in the end, there's a lamb on a throne. And in that final scene, there's going to be really two types of people. There are going to be those who are before the throne in front of the lamb, and there will be those who are seated on the throne next to the lamb. These verses are saying that while Jesus is on his throne, we who believe in him are there with him, never again to be overcome by sin. The price of wrath that we fully deserve to pay, already paid in full. This is amazing hope. And it says again, in the end, that God will show us immeasurably rich grace and kindness to us forever in Christ. He's going to dispense grace and we are going to display grace forever in Jesus. So as we received grace, we're also going to display his grace. And what this is going to look like is we're going to be like trophies of grace that say, look what God has done with such a mess. Look what he has done. And a trophy, though, doesn't get any credit for itself. It only speaks to the victory or the accomplishment of the hero, the, the, the person who won and accomplished the trophy. Jesus left heaven, he came to earth, he died for you, and rose again for the joy that was set before him. And that joy is you. You are the prize that Jesus ran for. He didn't lack anything, he lacked nothing, 
but he came for you and he will put you on display. Really, he'll put his grace and his kindness on display in you forever. So Timmy is going on this great race across Canada. He's riding his bike 8,000 kilometers or so across Canada. Jesus came and he ran an even greater race because there was a joy set before him. There was something waiting at the finish line that he didn't lack, but he wanted it, and that's you. We are going to display that glory. So guys, we've seen a few things here. I'm going to wrap up in just a moment. We've seen the problem of sin. We've seen how God came and saved us from sin through Jesus. But now what? What do we do now? What does our relationship with God look like? Paul describes it in, uh, in the final verses here of this chapter, or first section of this chapter, verses 8 through 10, if you want to read along with me. Paul says that by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God describes us as a workmanship, like a work of art, like a new sculpture, poem, song, painting, or his workmanship. What does this look like for us, though, now? Um, We see that Jesus has already come and already accomplished these realities. They're already true, but obviously we're not living exactly in, in that reality right now until Jesus returns. Jesus is going to come back and we're going to join him in heaven. So in the meantime, here's what this looks like. Paul says that we are God's workmanship, but there's a few things we have to understand about that. First thing is that our salvation is a gift. Second thing is that we can't boast about it. The third thing is that it's meant to be active. We do good works because of our salvation. So here's the first thing to understand. It's a gift. God's grace is a gift, right? What about faith? Do we contribute faith to earn God's grace or is that part of the gift too? Um, We often understand that grace is part of that gift, but I think sometimes we think this too. We think that God gave the grace and I give the faith and by that transaction, I get salvation. But according to Paul here, when he says that this is of your, not of yourselves, it is a gift of grace uh, of God, he's saying that the whole package, the grace and the faith, are both part of that gift. So the grace, the faith, it's all a gift. Otherwise, we could say, well, I get credit for my salvation to the degree that I had faith. And that's kind of what sets me apart from anyone else, is that I'm a person of faith. But really, the only human response here is to believe in that gift, to believe in the Savior. But God, in fact, gives, gifts us the faith required to believe in the Savior. So second point is that we can't boast. The only boasting, the only bragging that we can do is to brag about Jesus to talk about him and to make his name famous. 
We did nothing to earn our salvation. We did nothing to buy it or pay for it. And so we have nothing that we can talk about um, to brag about except for Jesus who bought, who bought it for us and gave it to us. It's commonly explained this way, that God in his grace sent Christ to live the life we could not live, to die the death we should have died, and rise on our behalf. And in that picture, which is the gospel, the glory only goes to God. But what do we do now? What do we do with it? Our faith must be active in good works, not just passive. We don't just say, yay, I'm so glad that God saved me from sin. Now I can live a peaceful, happy life for the rest of my life. It's actually meant to be more active than that. So what does that look like? What are these good works that Paul is describing here? This should motivate us. So we used to be, as Paul described in the first picture, we used to be spiritually dead. We used to be incapable of doing good works. Well, just like a dead person cannot raise a finger. Paul says we used to walk in sin, but now God has prepared good works in Christ for you to walk in. He's sovereignly already prepared good things for you to do. He's already placed them in your calendar. But now that we've been made alive, instead of previously being dead, we can go and do those because our instincts, in fact, have changed when we've become new and made alive in Christ. We actually are able, by instinct, to do good works at home, at work, in our neighborhood, and everywhere because of this because of what he's prepared for us. But it's important to know that these good works are not the root of our salvation. We don't do good works so that God will love us more or that he'll save us. Our good works are not the root of our salvation. They are the fruit of our salvation. And we get to share them with others. So when our faith produces fruit in our lives, when we do good works and people notice it, People are meant to see our good works and actually give praise to God. Not say, oh, wow, you're such a good person, Dennett. They actually look at Dennett and see, wow, there's something about him that's different. I might not know what it is, but in fact, it's God. That's his good works um, showing fruit. Jesus even said this, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So, Guys, I'm going to conclude with a couple of points here. How this salvation that we've received from God fuels two areas of our lives. Our worship and our witness. So kids, I said that there's a few points in a sermon that sound kind of like a kid's show where there's this big problem that we face and then the hero comes to save the day and then the people are saved. And normally in these shows, we get to sing a big song about it at the end, right? So I know Bob the Builder says something like, can we do it? And then we hear, yes, we can. (laughs) But at the end of a sermon, after seeing the great grace that God has given us, we don't say, can we do it? Yes, we can. We're faced with the fact that we cannot do this apart from God, but he can do this. At the end of Dora the Explorer, her and her little pet monkey boots sing this song that goes, We did it, we did it, we did it, hooray. Here we do not sing that. We sing, Jesus, you did it, you did it, you did it all, hooray. 
not in those exact words. But uh, guys, adults, um, Paul purposely draws attention here to the reality and the magnitude of our hopelessness before Christ intentionally so that we could worship him with greater perspective on the hope that we do have in him now. So we're gonna go and worship. We're gonna sing songs, not about what we've done, but about what Jesus has done for us. And later in this chapter, Paul actually says to remember the time that you were separated from Christ. A lot of us tend to suppress those ideas um, about who we were before we knew God. But Paul says to remember it for the purpose of motivating us in worship. So finally, this salvation should also fuel our witness. That means that when we meet other people who do not know Jesus, we can tell them about him. The people who are not on the throne in this final picture with the lamb are going to be standing in judgment of his wrath. Paul says that before we knew Jesus, we were without God. We were without hope. And that means that there are millions of people right now in this city who do not know God and who do not have that hope unless we tell them. So let's ask God today to show us the good works that he has prepared beforehand for us in Christ to walk in this week. Let's pray and ask God to show us those opportunities and witness to his great glory. So let's pray. Um, And then we're going to respond by singing awesome songs to Jesus. We're going to respond by taking communion, which is this bread and this wine or juice that shows us a picture of what Christ's body was like when it was broken for us. We take that to remember him. And we're going to give what God has given to us. We're going to give some of that back to him by giving him a tithe or an offering from from, uh, the money that he's provided so that he can reach more and more people in this city and make his name great and famous. So let's pray for all this today, guys. Lord God, thank you so much for the grace and mercy that you have towards us. You are reigning on your throne. You're the best king, and you are a mighty king, and you don't tolerate any bad things to happen forever. So you're going to wipe out sin. But Lord God, we need a savior because we are sinners. So Jesus, we need you to come and take that sin from us. And we know that you've done that by coming to live a perfect life we could never live. And you died on a cross. The death that we we deserved. You took all of God's wrath away. And instead, you hold out your hand and you offer us a gift to unwrap. And that gift is your grace and faith to believe in you, our savior. Jesus, please open that gift for us today. Give us the faith we need to believe and give us the opportunities this week to proclaim your awesome name and help us right now be with us as we worship your greatness, God. Amen.